Um, it's a joy for me to join you guys in worship this morning, um, and uh, even just as much, even a greater joy to be opening up God's Word with you. And um, as we make our way to Luke chapter 14, I want to uh, begin with a story to get our minds uh, facing the same direction. Uh, let's open up our Bibles to Luke 14, and I, I want to share this, uh, this, uh, this story, or I guess it could be better called a, a legend. Legend has it that um, as Alexander the Great was carrying his triumphal military campaign towards the east, he and a small section of his army approached a fortified city, a very high-walled city. And as Alexander the Great approached the city, he demanded to see the king and set out terms of surrender. The king, seeing Alexander the Great with 10, 20 men, a small section of his army, he laughed. Why should I surrender to you? You can't do us any harm. We can endure any siege. Look at our walls. Look how large we are. And in response, Alexander offered the king a demonstration. Nearby, within sight of the city walls, was a sheer cliff. He ordered his men to line up in a single file line and begin to march towards the precipice of that cliff. The citizens of that city watched with horrified fascination as the column moved unhesitantly towards the edge and over the edge. Only after several men plunged to their deaths and did Alexander order the rest of the column to halt and then call his troops back to his side and face the city and the king in silence. The effect on the citizens was stunning. From spellbound silence, they moved to terror. They realized they had no walls thick enough and no resources extensive enough to defend themselves against that kind of loyalty, commitment, and allegiance to a military leader. So immediately they rushed to the gates to give their terms of surrender, and that was it with no force exerted by Alexander the Great. Now, it's impossible to verify the authenticity of such a story. It could be legend. It could be myth. Um, but the, mor the, morale, the moral of the story is pretty clear. Radical allegiance to a person, cause, or idea could prove to be very, very effective. Whether the story about Alexander the Great is true or not, we know another story well embedded in history that rings genuinely true of such radical commitment. Um, historically, the church of Jesus Christ has been built on the radical allegiance of Christians who consider Jesus as worthy of their entire lives. And their commitment to Jesus wasn't one of uh, sheer illogical suicide like in the story of Alexander's soldiers, but rather, it was, a, it was a laying down of all that they were in order to advance the glorious kingdom of their Lord and Savior. And as history shows, we've read it in, in our church history books, we read it in secular history, that these men and women of faith were very, very effective. Now, in the next few moments, as we look at Luke 14 together, um, my goal here is to look at this passage of Scripture that describes a radical call of commitment that Christ gives to all those who decide to follow him. And the aim 
of, of our aim at looking at this passage, I want us to be, to, to not just be challenged, but to be more encouraged to see the extreme nature of this call to discipleship and to see this extreme, the extreme nature of this discipleship call as a means to a greater end, as just a tool that the Lord uses. And so the proposition is this. Jesus' call to discipleship is radical in nature because only radical discipleship is truly effective for the advancement of his kingdom. Only, um, I guess you could see it on the screen right there, authentic disciples are essentially effective disciples uh, because they demonstrate three attributes that display a total and absolute surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and we're going to look at those three things. Authentic disciples are ultimately effective because they have supreme affection for Christ, they have supreme allegiance to Christ, and they display supreme abandonment for Christ. Or in simpler terms, uh, I, I also put in parentheses, supreme love for Christ, supreme loyalty to Christ, and supreme loss for the sake of Christ. Uh, now let's read together, looking at, your, looking at our Bibles, at Luke 14, starting from verse 25 down to 35. 25 to 35. Reading from verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, Salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Gospel of Luke, one of the main themes that we see this Gospel writer give us as we read all these chapters is that Jesus is presented as a universal Savior, specifically as the Son of Man that is rejected by Israel, by his own people, and then offered to the Gentiles. And so he's the Son of Man who is the Son of God, who is the universal Savior, not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles, for the outcasts, for all those who are not part of Israel. Um, and so there's a broad pool of those who he has come to redeem. It's not just his people. His people rejected him. And so Jesus being presented as this universal Savior, diving into this chapter, chapter 14, I want us to see two scenes as we're looking at this, uh, the broad context. The first half of chapter 14, 
we have a feast with the Pharisees. We have uh, this, uh, this feast that Jesus comes to. And so before we look at the second half, verses 25 to 35, this discipleship discourse about Jesus talking to the crowds and talking about the extreme nature of his, of, of his call if they want to follow Jesus, we have to look at the preceding context to, to get a, a, good, a good idea, to get a better grasp as to why he's saying what he's saying. Uh, and I think Luke gives us these two scenes back to back with almost no transition because he's trying to uh, show us, uh, show us a, a prove, prove a point, show us a picture. This first half from verses 1 to 24, we see that Jesus is having a Sabbath meal with Pharisees. And in the Sabbath meal, he's having lots of conversations about many different things. But the same theme that runs true throughout all these 24 verses is that he's basically rebuking and condemning the Pharisees. He's not talking bad about them. He's just speaking the truth into their scenario, where they're at. So as he's having the Sabbath meal with these religious leaders, we see that the party he's invited to, it's, it's this opportunity that he has to display the hypocrisy and prideful heart of these religious leaders in verses 1 through 24. He displays their love in the first six verses. He displays their love for property over people as they show more mercy to cattle on a Sabbath than a man suffering with dropsy. They're loving property and things more than people made in the image of God. Then later in the next section, he calls them out as those who love to exalt themselves and calls them to humble themselves as they want the seat of honor, right, in the Sabbath meal. He calls them to not consider gain that they could get from this life, but what they could sacrifice in order to be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, he tells them a parable then about, a, he tells these Pharisees a parable about a dinner and where the Pharisees themselves in this parable are the ones who are making a bunch of excuses. They're making, they're, they show their pride and love of themselves and their own possession by making excuses to not come to this banquet that the master is inviting them to. It's a parable that condemns them. He condemns them and then transitions to open this invitation to all those who are unworthy and were not originally invited to the great banquet. Look with me at verse 23 and 24. At the end of that parable that's told to the Pharisees at the Sabbath meal, Jesus says, And the master said to the slave, Go out into all the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of the dinner. The ones who made excuses. I have a wife to marry. I bought property. All these lame excuses. They're not going to come, but go to the highways, invite everyone to, I, so, that, so that my house may be filled. And then we have Luke just right away transition to this next scene. From the Sabbath meal where the Jesus is sitting with these religious leaders and talking to them and calling out their pride and, and telling them, you love property more than people and saying, look, this is parable. You're making all these excuses. You're not coming to this great banquet and, and you're not going to be invited. The, the servant's going to go out and invite everybody. And right away, verse 25, no transition. Now large crowds were going along with him and he turned to them and says, if anyone wants to come after me. So, there's no transition. The gospel writer looks straight from this Sabbath meal just goes now 
From, from this picture of these, these Pharisees talking to Jesus over this meal, right away, Jesus is in front of large crowds, and many people are following him, and he speaks to them. And why? Because he ends the parable, he ends the parable of the great banquet with this. Go out there, go out there and tell, invite everybody so that my house may be filled. This invitation to, 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 to Israel symbolically, to, to, to the religious leaders of Israel, they, they make these excuses. They don't want to come to Christ. I'm going to go out and invite everybody. Jesus is then speaking to large crowds, to many crowds. So the audience just shifts, just transitions right away. We have a small, intimate setting where there's maybe 30, maybe 20, maybe 15 people, Pharisees and Jesus and his disciples, and then right away to a big audience. And, and, and we have to understand that because if we're, we have to understand that this audience is broad and there's this transition that Luke does because then we will, we will then grasp the tone, the tone of, of why Jesus is speaking in such a different way. As we, as we see Jesus then transition to this new audience and he, where he in the beginning was maybe wooing people to himself as he, as he, as he woos to himself we see Jesus speak to the large crowds and he then begins to winnow them. He begins to, to sift and to, to speak to the large crowds, many who are following him. He's going to tell them, hey, you're all invited. I want you to come follow me, but I only want these kind of followers. He doesn't make high demands. He just, he just clarifies what true, true discipleship looks like. And so as we have this shift in audience, we have the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus addressing the large crowds and establishing what true discipleship looks like. And before we go through the, the middle section of it, I want us to look at the end. In the end, I want us to look at verses 34 and 35. Look at this. That conjunctive ad, therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, what will be seasoned with. That, th these two verses just summarize all of, all of verses 25 to 33, the last two verses. Jesus is, is calling the crowds to come follow him, and he's telling them, hey, I need you to be like this. He's basically saying, I need you to be salt, and I need you to be salty salt. I need you to be useful. The word for useless that we see in verse 35 it is useless when, when salt has become tasteless. Uh, it's used only three times in the New Testament, and two of them are used in Luke's gospel. The first one is in chapter 9, uh, where Jesus says, when someone makes an excuse, they follow him. They say, another, another one also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to go to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hands to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, or is that same word, useful, is that fittedness, that usefulness to be to be used for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, is explaining that usefulness and fittedness of a servant of God's kingdom is determined by whether he values Christ above all other relationships. Um, Jesus is saying, in verse 34 and 35, if you follow me, you are salt, but I need you to be salty. I need you to be useful because otherwise you're thrown out. In other words, Jesus is explain, exclaiming in these statements, 
I need salty salt. I need salty disciples. I need the real deal, the kind of disciples who are completely surrendered to me in their affection, allegiance, and abandonment so that they can be completely useful to me. If you follow me, Jesus is saying, you better give me total allegiance. If you follow me, you, you, you need to be loyal to me and committed until death. If you follow me, you need to be willing to lose it all. I cannot, I, Jesus is saying, you cannot be my disciple unless you're salty. I have no use for saltless salt. I have no use for disciples who are not radically committed to me. That's why he says the three negatives. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. No one can be my, no one can be my disciple if they are not willing to lose all their possessions. Discipleship, in other words, if we paraphrase, we plug in discipleship into that word salt in verses 34 and 35. The paraphrase is this. Discipleship is good, but if disciples follow me without any real commitment, what's the point? Disciples who are not supremely, supremely allegiant to me are useless. I don't need them. Thrown out. Discipleship itself is not the end, ever. Our salvation is not the end. The glory of God is, right? God advancing his kingdom, God receiving glory through our lives. Discipleship is a means to a greater end. Discipleship is the means and method by which the Lord Jesus advances the kingdom of the gospel and brings glory to his Father. That's why, that's why when the Lord saves us, he doesn't just teleport us into glory. We stay here because we're called to advance his kingdom. And the way we do that effectively is by following Jesus. And Jesus says, I need you to be like this. I need your love, your loyalty, your loss for my sake to be right here. That's why he ends it. Therefore, salt is good, but if it's not salty, what's the point? In other words, maybe we don't understand salt as seasoning and preservative, like it was used, as it was as useful as it was back in the day. In, in, in our day, you could, everyone knows what a razor is, right? Uh, razors, you shave with it, you, you make precise cuts. At my old job, we used razors to clean vehicles, to clean stuff off, off of windshields and to take off decals. And so the moment a razor, like a sharp piece of metal, stopped being sharp, it, it was, became dull, we just threw it out. It's useless. What's the, point of me to What's the point of me using a tool that's not sharp? I can't cut with it. I can't make precise cuts. I can't clean this vehicle with a dull razor. So I just th it's just thrown out, and I get a sharp razor. The same, it's the same way with here. The Lord Jesus is saying, you, if you follow me, I need you to be like salt, and salt needs to be salty. I, I need you to be useful to me, and this is how you're useful to me. This is how you're effective to, to, uh, effective for the cause of the kingdom. And then let's go through these three negatives. Uh, all that you cannot be my disciple. Um, the, the, the gospel writer Luke uses three negative statements to give us a description on the positive note what a useful and effective disciple looks like. He illustrates this with a cannot, he cannot be my disciple statement. The first one is in verse 26, right? We read this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Supreme affection for Christ is required if we are to be 
disciples of Jesus Christ, if we were to be authentic and effective disciples of Jesus Christ, supreme love, supreme affection, when we look at this passage in Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus isn't talking about hatred in the absolute sense. We see that he is he's using hatred of other relationships in a relative sense, where he's comparing. He's, he's using it in a relative sense. The love of family and other people is one of the excuses, actually, that the Pharisees had. So think about why he's saying this. It's not random, brothers and sisters. The, the previous context in verse, in verse 20 of chapter 14, these people that are invited to the banquet, one of them said, I have a wife to marry, right? I, you know, I can't come to the banquet in verse 20. I have, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. So an excuse. It's an illegitimate excuse. You, you need a, you're invited to this banquet. You're invited to, to, the, to, to this feast before the Lord, and you're not going to come because you married a wife. Illegitimate excuse. Why? Because of the relative sense. If you love, if you hold in higher esteem and higher regard any relationship in your life above the Lord, it, it's, it's basically idolatry, right? It's basically you considering someone in your life, whether it's an employer, a boss, a spouse, a friend, to be more valuable than the Lord Jesus. And the, the Pharisees made this excuse. I have married someone. I can't come to the banquet in the previous context. So Jesus says, your love must, for me must be so high that it's considered hatred towards other people. Same thing in Luke chapter 9. Look with me at Luke 9, verses 59 to 62. Look at all these. We see the same thing, a, a love for family over allegiance to Christ. In Luke chapter 9, verse 59 and 62. And he said to another, follow me. Jesus is calling people to, to, to follow him. But, but that person said, Lord, permit me to, go, to, to first go and bury my father. Verse six, and then verse 60. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Verse 61. And he said to another, I will follow. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to go say say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The same word, useless salt, unsalty salt. If you look back, if you consider any relationship to be more important than, than yours with the Lord, you're not effective. You're not fit for the kingdom. He might think... <laughs> You might, you're sitting there and I'm standing in. You might think, man, that's some pretty extreme language. That's, that sounds harsh. That sounds harsh because, man, how, what kind of love is that that I'm, I'm, I must have for the Lord? And, and does that mean I, as a believer, does that mean I have to just pray for five hours a day, read my Bible for five hours, spend a little bit of time with my family? Like, does that mean my love for for, for Christ has to be just overwhelmingly, I have to be so obsessed with it where I commit everything, where I become, where I, I become a monk or a nun, where I just, I, I neglect everything. I don't carry, I don't care about any relationship in my life and I just, and I'm just committed to, to the Lord and my spiritual relationship with him because it does sound pretty extreme. And I think the, the reason why we have a problem of correctly grasping it is because we often think about what we give our time over to is, is what we value and we say, Okay, I have, I have a shelf in my life. 
and we keep Jesus as the number one priority at the top, top of the shelf, and then everything else comes, then, you know, my marriage, and then, you know, uh, church, and then employment, and we, we, have, we have a rank. We, we, we list Jesus as number one, and then everything else falls through. And, you know, we, you know, we, we realize, oh, I have, to give my, I have to give an hour of time a day to, to the Lord, I have to be in prayer and reading um, the scripture, and then I, I have to give a lot of time to my family, and then I work 40 hours a week and all this stuff. And we think about our priorities in our relationships as, as a list, as a shelf, and I think that's the wrong way to view it. Because that's not how Jesus here is, um, that's not, I don't think that's how he wants us to view it. Instead of a shelf where Jesus is number one and everything else just, you know, we give 10 minutes here, 20 minutes here, 40 hours here. And instead, Jesus has to be, based on this demand of us following him, he has to be the center of all of our relationships. If we follow Jesus, and we have a supreme love for him, and everything else in comparison looks like hatred because we love Christ so much, Jesus is not the top of the shelf. Jesus is the center of the solar system of our lives. Think about your life like a solar system. And the, we know that everything orbits around the sun, all the planets. And if you think about it in your life right now, you, what's, your whole, what your whole life revolves around is usually what you're always thinking about, what you're focused on, what worries you, what's your priority. And some of you, it might be your job. Everything in your life revolves around your job. All your relationships, everything. I, I'm, I'm trying to get that promotion to my job. So all your energy, all your thought processes, all, all of your, I mean, all your joy. Oh, I got, I'm getting that promotion next week. Your, your job is the center of your life. And everything in your life, your marriage, your kids, um, your hobby, everything revolves around that, your job that makes you money. Or it could be, it could be a relationship. Everything in my life revolves around my family, everything. The church revolves around my family. I, I, I mean, the family is the center of my life. If Jesus is not the center of your solar system and everything revolves around him, you are practicing idolatry. If I place my wife as the center of my life, whom I love very dearly, that's, that's idolatry. The Lord Jesus, the church. Every, my wife is not the center of my life. My job your hobby of collecting cars, <laughs> your love for basketball, that, if that's the center of your life, if your supreme love and the supreme affection is for anything other than the Lord Jesus, you're committing idolatry and you're practicing idolatry. And you cannot effectively be an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ. But the Lord Jesus is, is calling you to place him as the supreme love, the center of the solar system in your life and have all your relationships revolve around him. Your work, your business, everything revolves around Jesus. If he's the center, then everything else is in, is, is in its right place. Everything else is in order because Neptune and Mars and Venus were created by God to revolve around the sun of the, of the solar system. And you and I were created to have our marriages, our businesses, our hobbies, our friendships revolve around the God of the universe, namely the Son of God who revealed himself in the, in the flesh and who died for your and my sin and who reigns today, reigns as, as the sovereign Lord, the one whom we behold as we've sung. 
And if he, he is the sender, everything else is in order. All your relationships are, are in order. That's the gist of what I think, I think he's trying to get at. If everything has to be around me, even your own life, right? Even his own life. You must hate your own life. Everything has to revolve around Jesus. Secondly, as we, as we move on from supreme affection or supreme love, the second extreme statement Jesus gives this large audience as he's winnowing them. He just calls a lot of people. Then he's like, he's like okay, let's see who the real ones are. If you really want to follow me, if you want, real com- if you want to be committed to me with actual, with actual real attachment, not just committed to me for the benefits, right, of me doing miracles and giving you free food. If you've, it says in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you follow me, you have to carry your own cross if you want to come after me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, the very famous quote, right? We all know it. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man to himself, he bids him to come and die. And I think today, a lot of us, I mean, most people in, in the modern U.S., when we see crosses, we think of a, a religious symbol, a sentimental, symbolic symbol for a Christian or for a person who goes to church. A cro- people wear it on, on their, you know, people wear crosses as jewelry, right? We see crosses in, on, on T-shirts. And the cross is such a, sim- it, it, it just has such a, like, religious connotation with it that it, it has, it's not the same way the ancient audience viewed the cross. We all know that. Uh, we know that the Romans perfected that form of execution. Um, so the, this large audience that are following Jesus, when they hear, hey, when they hear him say, you must take up your cross and follow me, they knew, to them it wasn't symbolic. It was very clear. Like, you mean I have to, I have to be willing to die? I have to be willing to, to take on a gruesome death that was usually used for for criminals who, who had the worst of crimes against the state? I mean, in the U.S. today, as I was driving down Interstate 80 to come here, we don't see, we don't see the worst of criminals, murderers, and, 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 it's, and people who are sitting in jail. We don't see them hanging over the bridges on, on wooden sticks, just bloodied, you know, Dying for a few days. We don't see that. We don't have public execution here in the, in the modern day here in the U.S. People in, in Jesus' day would walk down highways before they'd enter cities, gated cities. They would see crosses with criminals hanging. It was common in the Roman Empire. And it was done to have a very effect, very, uh, very harsh effect on, on the people. To scare them to to break any laws, to defy the Roman Empire. That was the point. It was very effective. It actually worked. People did not want to die hanging naked with no clothes on, having animals eat the, them, their body parts as they're slowly suffocating to death and dying from, from their wounds. It was a public form of execution because it was, it was done to bring shame and humiliation, but also to deter and to strike terror into the public so that no one could join any kind of group of people that defies the Roman government. And yet Jesus here is, ex- is expecting his followers to take on a cross and be willing to die with him. 
that's a very extreme call to allegiance. That's a very high calling of loyalty. And, and, and here Jesus is explaining that, he, that if you follow me, I, I require everything from you. I, I'm not calling you to a life of ease if you're going to be a disciple of mine. And Kent Hughes writes, you know, explains it very well. I think he summarizes it very well when he says, no one ever became a disciple of Christ and lived a life of ease. You can search the writings of the apostolic church and you'll find no exception. You could check every writing and personal vignette during the first 400 years of church history and you'll find no disciple lounging on a bed of constant comfort. The same is true of the Dark Ages and the Renaissance and the Reformation and the 500 years of intervening church history. Discipleship always called for extreme sacrifice. Discipleship, authentic, effective discipleship where, where, where churches are being built on the blood of the martyrs always required, required sacrifice. So cross-bearing, me and you taking on our crosses and following Jesus is when we are willing to be inclined to endure suffering that comes with the result of following Christ. To be willing to suffer and go through hardship and trial. Christ's demand for allegiance, Christ's demand for extreme loyalty to him is not an invitation to make Jesus a good addition to our lifestyle. Just add Jesus on Sunday mornings. Just add Jesus to my bio on Instagram, right? Just add Jesus to a part of my life instead of him being the center and everything revolving around him. So that extreme love, that, extreme, that supreme affection for Christ, if it's genuine, it always leads to supreme allegiance. In one, in one sense, supreme allegiance is the fruit of supreme affection. Those disciples who truly love the Lord Jesus will lead a life of allegiance to him. They'll, they will be loyal. They will be willing to be shamed and humiliated and even die for the sake of Christ. They will, they will speak the truth in a, in a culture and generation where the truth, where the culture celebrates sin and celebrates godlessness and celebrates anything that opposes Christ, but yet the Christian who loves the Lord will be loyal to the point where he speaks and he stands for the truth and is willing to then suffer for the truth. Yeah, maybe in our day and age, the tear is not there. We're not on that tier of where here in California we're suffering physically like people in India or like the saints in China who suffer for their faith because the government's um, actions against those who follow Jesus. But we have to be willing to be in that mindset and to, and to have that as, as, as an expression of our faith. These three things are just expressions of genuine faith. Real love for the Lord, real loyalty to be committed. As we read the last one, supreme loss or supreme abandonment for the sake of Christ. And these two parables that take this big chunk, chunk describe this loyalty and loss pretty well. Verses 20 down to 33. We see these two parables about, uh, a, a, uh, about uh, a man who builds a tower who can't afford it and uh, a man who does, is, is not willing to surrender but needs to, to consider to surrender because he can't win the battle that's, that's heading his way. So an effective disciple has supreme love for the Lord. An effective and authentic disciple has uh, has true loyalty to Christ. And 
An effective, authentic disciple shows and demonstrates extreme loss for the sake of Christ or abandonment of all that he or she has for the sake of Christ. Um, we read in this first, in this first uh, parable that, um, that there is a man who builds a tower and then that phrase is, is, is repeated three times in it from verses 28 to 30. He doesn't have enough to complete it. Is he not able to finish it? And then many will ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And there's this theme of like, why'd you start? Why'd you start this building project if you don't have the funds to finish it? Why does it have built? Why'd you lay down the foundation and the frame and then nothing's being put up? So there's this lack of commitment to the end. And so these words they just intensify the meaning, the, the meaning of not having sufficient means to start. But it's also describing the reality of many churchgoers, the reality of many people who call themselves Christian, who, who decide to follow the Lord initially along a, fa- a flower-strewn pathway where everything is great and the weather is nice. And it seems, it's popular. All my friends, all my family, everyone's going to church. But then when, when people leave, when the weather becomes bad, when there's cruel rocks in the pathway, when it becomes difficult and persecution and adversity hits, they discover, these people, that it's not worth it. I don't think it's worth it to continue to go down that path. I don't think it's worth it to put all of my funds into this building project. I don't see this building as worthy of me emptying my bank account, of me emptying and selling all my resources instead of being like that man who found that pearl of great prize or that treasure in the field and sold all that he had, went, sold his house, sold all his cattle, sold everything and bought that field because the investment was worth it. The field had a, a treasure that, that made everything else in comparison seem worthless. But yet, a person decides to follow Christ and then decides to stop building the building, decides to stop, to, stop, to walk away. And the sad reality is this, is, is if you're a believer for any, any time, for a few years, you and I, we see that. You, you know by name people that have walked away from the faith. You know people in your life who've, who've rejected the faith, who've made a shipwreck. Who've, who've considered and deemed Jesus as not worthy, but their sin as more worthy and more pleasurable and more enticing. You and I are tempted with that even at times in our lives, with the world and the flesh and the pride of life. So Jesus, when he's, what he's saying here is this, is that someone who walks away from the faith and stops building this building is someone who proclaims with that rejection of the faith, he proclaims with their actions of of leaving Christ, this, my sinful lifestyle is more enjoyable than Christ. I love my sin more than Jesus. I consider this in my life to be more important than Christ. I want to live my life and invest all all of my treasure into this instead of Jesus. And so they leave their building unfinished. They don't consider the price to be worth it. When you're buying a car, a vehicle, you, someone gives you a price, if you don't think it's worth it, you're not going to pay the price. But if someone gives you a treasure, that being Jesus, comes up to you and says, 
sell everything you have and acquire me, is it worth it? Is it worth it to lose it all for him? And our actions will speak louder than our words many times because our, our actions are, are, are just the, are the product, are the fruit of, of what we believe. So the second, the second uh, short parable um, that Jesus uses about the delegation and, and, the, and the king needs to surrender, A.M. Hunter puts it very well when he says, the two parables are similar, but they make slightly different points. The builder of the tower is free to build or not as he chooses, but the king is being invaded, so he must do something. So one is you have to make a choice. The other is like, hey, it's coming towards you. You got to decide. You got to make a decision. So in the first parable, Jesus says, sit down and consider whether you can afford to follow me, paying everything that you have. In the second one, he says, sit down and consider whether you can afford to refuse my demands. Both ways of looking at it are important. The lesson is plain. Jesus do not, does not want followers who rush into discipleship without thinking about the cost of discipleship and the price that needs to be paid. So the love, the supreme love, leads to loyalty and allegiance to Christ and ultimately manifests itself in this, that you lay everything down on the line, that, that you're willing to lose all your possessions, that you're, you're willing to go to, you're willing to leave your life of comfort in the U.S. And, and go to Bangladesh to be part of a team that plants churches and lose your security, lose your comfort. You're willing to do that because you want the lamb to be glorified and honored and you want people in Bangladesh to come to Christ and sing to the Lamb at the end of the ages. And you think it's worth it to leave your comfortable life. You're willing to lose all your possessions to lay them all down for that because Jesus is worth it. That's the mentality. That's the mindset of an authentic and effective, like a disciple that Jesus actually uses for his glory and to advance his kingdom. I love the Lord. He, he, he's the center of my life. Everything rolls around him. And, and I, and I want to be faithful and loyal to him until the end. And Lord, what must I do? What have you called me to do? What have you called me to lay down in my life? What have you called me to invest everything that I am to do for your kingdom? What is it? That's the mentality that Jesus wants his disciples to have. That's why he says, don't. Don't follow me if you're if you don't follow me if you love your family more than me. Don't follow me if you're not willing to take up your cross and, and be humiliated and shamed with me. Don't follow me if you're not willing to, to lay it all down for my sake, to lose all your possessions. I don't need you. You're you're like a razor that's dull. How can I make effective cuts? How can I use you as a tool in my tool bag? How can we be effective members, fingers, toes? Uh, the nervous, how could we be effective members of the body of Christ if he can't use us? He wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants us to follow him, but on his terms. And you might think, okay, well, this sounds pretty extreme, <laughs> but, but if Jesus is worth it, if he's, if he's beautiful in your sight, if you behold him as the glorious Christ, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. And, and we have a perfect example of this as we finish up. I want us to look at, uh, just, I'm not going to read it, but 
Luke 18, if you turn your Bibles to just two pages or one, Luke 18 and 19. In Luke 18, we have the rich young ruler. In Luke 19, we have the rich tax collector, Zacchaeus, right? We have two men who have a lot of possessions. And one of them, the rich young ruler, when Jesus, when Jesus uh, tells him, hey, look what he tells him. He gives him the same test that he gives the crowds. He says in, he says in, 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 in verse 22, Luke 18, verse 22, Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Come follow me. I want you to be my disciple. Verse 23, but he, when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And then disciples were like, well, I guess the rich can't inherit the kingdom of, it's impossible. How, if, if they can't answer, man, we're, we're all done. The disciples were like, you know, surprised and, you know, he must, he has it all. He must, it, makes, it makes sense to follow Jesus. But Jesus, it's so interesting. Jesus says, hey, it's, what, it's impossible with man. All, you know, with, with, the, with the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And so the next chapter, there's a direct opposite response from also a wealthy man, Zacchaeus, who, who in chapter 19, who, who, who gave everything, who, who gave three times back, four times back. He, he repaid everyone who's wrong. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house today. He was willing to depart from his possessions because he saw Jesus as worthy. Two wealthy men, two completely opposite responses. And so you and I, we, we are one of those men. We're, you're one of those. It might not be wealth for you because you, you might not possess great wealth, but you possess a lot of time and energy. You possess certain desires and dreams. Are you laying down your dreams for the Lord to, to use your desires for, for, to, to build up a career or to, to, to do this hobby or to do that for the Lord? And so the Lord is asking you, what, what is the center of your life? Do you have supreme love for me or that everything that you do revolves around me? The Lord is telling us today, I want you to be authentic, effective disciples, and I want you to follow me, but I need you to be useful. And you're only useful if your commitments are radical in nature. So as we come to prayer right now, I, I, would, I, would, I would, my prayer for, for you and I is to examine our hearts, is to see in the light of Scripture, in the light of chapter 14 of Luke, whether, whether as, we, as we stand in this crowd, this large audience, along with these people thousands of years ago, and, he, and Jesus is speaking to us and he's telling us that you cannot be my disciple if you don't love me above all, if you're not willing to take up your cross, if you're not willing to, if you're not willing to lose all your possessions and lay it all down, down on the line, that we would be either corrected or rebuked or even encouraged as we've been as you've been faithfully doing that and to be exhorted to continue to press on more and to fight the good fight of faith so that our expressions of faith as as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ would ring true in alignment to scripture it would be true it would be aligned with the standards that the lord himself placed for us here in scripture so may the lord be glorified in using us as his disciples may he be honored as we behold him as the greatest treasure in our lives that we have to tell everyone about and that we need to, we need to keep him as the center so that he's honored and we're effectively advancing the kingdom in our lives. Amen? Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you that you are so good to us. We thank you, Lord, that you give us your word that explains and reveals and sheds light on what you require of those who follow you. You have not left us in the dark. You made it very clear to us, Lord, that if we are to be those who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, followers of Christ, that we would be aligned to your standards and that we would have a supreme love for you and supreme loyalty even until death and be willing to lay down everything and lose all of our possessions for your sake. Lord, help us see where we're at. Help us see whether we're truly salty disciples, whether we're truly useful disciples that you have called to advance your kingdom, Lord, so that in the end we may find joy in service of your kingdom and that you may be honored and glorified. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.